Father, we do lift up all the unspoken concerns as well, and we know that you are sovereignly working in us and in the world, and we praise you for that. We do pray that you would, in fact, use this circumstance as you have it throughout history to bring people to yourself when people are uneasy or concerned or fearful. Sometimes they turn to you, and we would desire that you would turn hearts and turn many hearts to you in this circumstance that uh, you might bring people into a saving relationship with yourself. So we just praise you for the opportunities that you've given that we may be able to share the gospel. And as some have already shared, the openness of others that perhaps would not have been thinking about their spiritual state. So we also want to commit our time to you. We praise you, as was already prayed, that we have this opportunity to meet. We praise you that there are some with us that normally could not meet because of distance, but today are just as close as everyone else here in Albuquerque. So we praise you for that. And uh, we desire that you would illumine our minds and our hearts to not only understand your word, but to be able to apply it in our everyday lives. So we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I'm going to get into an area, we'll just probably close to the end, unless we have a little bit more discussion than what I anticipate, but a area that is somewhat controversial, and I think it's misunderstood, and also within the body of Christ, I think it is a divisive topic, and unfortunately, I don't want it to be divisive. And also, unfortunately, as I sent in the email, the viewpoint that I hold is kind of a very minority view, and it's a little bit outside of many in our circle, and I don't want to cause a controversy or any problems there, but I think we can discuss it and sort out, and obviously I'm not going to try to impose what I believe even though it is the right view, but I won't impose it on anyone. Just kidding. So you all can uh, take the information, and in fact, what you should do is do what the Bereans did, evaluate it, and accept that that is biblical, and that that may not be that you can sort out. In fact, that should be done with uh, virtually everything that you listen to and everything that you read. We should all read like the Bereans evaluated things and and read with a an eye to pulling out the things that are beneficial and good and then sorting out and laying to the side those things that are not. So with that, let's take a look at the passage. First of all, we're talking about Jacob. We looked last time and I'll give you a little review of it. Jacob God chose him, so I call call it uh, Jacob chosen, and we'll focus on verses 10 through 13 in chapter 9, and my intention is to get through all of the verses, at least at one level. Uh, we won't go into as much depth in the later verses. I'm going to kind of look at the first few there until we get to the particular word. We have a word relating to the doctrine of election. And then from there, I'll summarize the rest. And then I'd like to start with an introduction to this whole area that we call God's election, which is difficult for some people. So with that, we're dealing with 
an audience in the first century. Some of you visited this very site. This was a rainy day, but I think you remember these main structures that exist to this very day. Some of them over 2,000 years old. The Temple of Judah, uh, Jupiter, 501 BC. So that was there in the time of Paul and was very prominent amongst the believers that lived in the city of Rome. So this letter is written to both Jew and Gentile in the city of Rome. And there were considerable Jews. This was the center of the empire. So lots of commerce, lots of economic activity. And throughout history, wherever there's economic activity, you find Jewish people. So there were a lot of converts, part of the church at Rome and That's part of the audience that Paul writes to. So it was composed of both Jew and Gentile, probably more Gentile than Jewish. Some of them met in homes, and many of those smaller churches were smaller than the group that we have gathered here on the Internet. So the city of Rome was very important in the first century. Paul writes to them, and this gives you a little feel and reminds those of you that were In Rome last year, almost this time, we're a little bit over a month away from our our trip. Reminds you of some of the things that we studied and looked at when we were there. Paul wrote the book of Romans to them. The bulk of the book, the main division, I've titled Provision of God's Righteousness. That's the main topic. So Paul's main subject in the whole letter is essentially God providing his very own righteousness to those that lack it, those that are lost, those that are condemned because of sin. And there's no way that sinful mankind can acquire it. The natural tendency is to try to please God by things that we do, going to church, etc. But there, there's nothing that we can do except what he has provided. So the provision is Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. That's chapter 3. And we access that by believing that what Jesus did in payment for our sin satisfies the righteous requirements of God. So that's chapters 1 through 8. And then within that, we also have a section within the provision part six through eight, where we spend a lot of time where he talks about trying to live out the uh, righteousness that we have been declared. So we call that sanctification or the Christian walk, living out the righteousness that God has provided. And then since there's so many Jews and also Gentiles and you and I need to understand that there was a problem that Jewish people would have because they rejected this provision. And Paul starts off in chapter 9 expressing his sorrow over the fact that most Jewish people have not only rejected Messiah and now are really missing out on what God has provided for them. So what he's going to do is address this issue starting with the word of God and more specifically the promises to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. Have they been uh, nullified? Have they been lost? What What's the issue? Has God now turned to the Gentiles and they don't have to obey the law? That was made clear in the provision of God's righteousness. So he's going to deal with all of these issues concerning what about the nation of Israel? So this passage, and you have to keep that in mind, 
because many of the passages, including the ones that we're going to look at today, are misinterpreted. And if you don't take into account that this is addressed to the situation of the Jews. Now, it's written to Gentiles as well so that we can understand it and that we can have a right relationship to Jewish people and the nation of Israel. So Paul is vindicating God's righteousness in that, no, those promises, those covenants, in fact, all of the privileges, he also mentions them in verse 4 and 5, chapter 9, all of those privileges of the nation of Israel have not been set aside or have not been lost, you might say, or nullified. But in fact, in this section, he's going to show that we're just in the middle of an era. We call it the church age. And in that time frame, God is working much like he's done in the past. So he's going to deal in chapter 9, verses 1 through 29, to remind Jewish people and the nation of Israel of how he dealt even from the very beginning, how he dealt with Abraham. And the promise was not simply to Abraham's descendants. There's an Ishmael. The promises, the covenant do not pertain, well, indirectly, but directly the seed of Abraham goes through Isaac, not Ishmael. So when you speak of Israel, these are descendants of Isaac, not the descendants of Ishmael. In fact, the descendants of Ishmael throughout history have been antagonistic up to this very day, antagonistic to the descendants of Isaac. The passage we're going to look at in this same section takes it one step further. It's not only through Isaac, but we will see that also Jacob is chosen. So the descendants of Esau, they are not the parties to the Abrahamic covenant, and all of the privileges don't pertain to them unless they access God through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's going to relate primarily the sovereignty of God in choosing, and that's where we have to understand this doctrine of election. God choosing First of all, Abraham, and then in this passage, more specifically, Isaac, and then even more specifically, Jacob, and the promise goes through them, and it's the descendants of Jacob that make up ethnic or national Israel. Well, what about Israel? Have they lost all of those privileges? No, they've been set aside. In fact, they're under God's discipline. That's chapter 9, verse 30, through chapter 10, verse 21, which is the end of the chapter. And in one sense, they are rejected in this time frame. And uh, the issue is not only the nature of that, but the reasons. So he's going to explain why Israel is set aside. And there are two reasons that he gives in that passage. I'll wait till we get to closer to it to explain them. But the main point of this whole section and how God's righteousness is vindicated in that all of those promises will in the future be fulfilled in the nation of Israel. So this passage is extremely important and it's important especially today when I introduce this whole section I uh, spoke of the anti-Semitism that is growing throughout the world 
and growing in our country as well, and a denial of things like the Holocaust, excuse me, this is growing. And in Europe, anti-Semitism is becoming almost as rampant as it was shortly before World War II. With the growth of Islam in Europe, along with just European sentiment, anti-Semitism is a growing problem, not only in Europe, but all over the world. And there's a strain of it here. And unfortunately, in that introduction, I'll just remind you, I mentioned that uh, one of the greatest anti-Semites historically has been the body of Christ, has been the church itself. And there is a form of it that is creeping back into the church today that you need to be aware of. And I'll just mention it again by way of reminder. I won't go over it in detail, but there is within the church today and historically, this began very early in church history, a theology that is called replacement theology. Replacement theology is unbiblical. In fact, chapters 9 through 11 is the most detailed explanation of what counters this idea of not only anti-Semitism, but replacement theology. Now, those that hold to replacement theology in general are not necessarily and automatically anti-Semitic, but it's the first step in that direction. So, not everyone that is involved in Replacement theology are anti-Semitic, but every anti-Semitic person is at least replacement theology and or denial of all of the privileges of the nation of Israel. So this book has a major section in it that deals with that whole issue by vindicating that God will still in the future fulfill everything that he has promised And the church age is simply an age in time that is laying the groundwork in terms of the death of Christ and God dealing with Gentiles such that in the future, God will return to dealing with the nation of Israel. And that'll happen after the church is removed. That's not in this passage, but that's elsewhere in the New Testament. So that's kind of a quick overview of this passage In outline form, provision of God's righteousness, essentially the first eight chapters after the introduction. Chapter nine, the vindication of God's righteousness. And a little more expanded from my little chart there, the past sovereign election of Israel. So we're dealing with the nation of Israel throughout these passages. And what I want to kind of share with you is an aspect on the doctrine of election that involves Israel, which is, I think, a different category. It's related, but different from the concept of the doctrine of election in terms of believers. And one of the issues will deal with the passages in the New Testament that deal with the word that is translated election or elect, the noun form. So we'll take a look at that in a moment. So the past sovereign election of Israel, we've looked at the passage that deals with Paul's sorrow. That sorrow is is vindicated or will be in more detail as we progress. And essentially what he's basically explaining there, 
is the the reality of this extreme sorrow that he has for his fellow Jewish people. So we looked at that passage along with the vindication part of it where he basically states that Israel still has the privileges that they had in the past and always will be. And we've moved into the next part of uh, this first subdivision. The word of God is vindicated. In other words, he asks the question, has the word of God failed? And I think he specifically, from what he says in the following, he's referring to the promises that God has made to Abraham and then entered into actual covenant with Abraham. So he's going to deal specifically with that aspect of the word of God that deals with the Abrahamic covenant. And we've reviewed some of that last time. So the word of God is vindicated in verses 6 through 13. And we've looked at the first part. It's vindicated in that God chose Isaac over Ishmael. So when he's talking about the privileges, they are applicable to the descendants of Isaac. So he reviews a little bit, and we reviewed a little bit of the history of Abraham and the choice of Isaac over Ishmael. And in terms of the Jews of the first century, to understand this concept or this this passage or series of passages in the book of Genesis, Paul is reminding them that God has always been selective, and he has set aside some, if you will, and gave priority to others like Isaac. And the Jews of the first century, there's two divisions. There's a true Israel that we talked about in this part of uh, the book of Romans, this passage here. And there's ethnic or national Israel. And within it, God has made a distinction within it. And he's saying that if God could set aside Ishmael, and we'll see also Esau, if God could set Esau aside and choose Jacob, then uh, God in his sovereignty is righteous in setting aside the Israelites that have rejected Messiah. And that's part of the explanation that we have in this passage and the, the main thrust. So the context, Paul's extreme sorrow and Now that moves him to the explanation as to the situation with his fellow Jewish people. We also mentioned last time the context is Israel's unique privileges and whether or not they have been lost. And what we saw even from the beginning passage last week, they're not lost. They're simply set aside because God is working sovereignly in our day similar to how he did in the past with the nation of Israel, and he goes all the way to the beginning. So I mentioned when he refers to, in this passage, all of Israel, this is ethnic or national Israel, all descendants of Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, that's ethnic Israel. And in the passage, he's distinguishing between true Israel And more specifically, the children of God are those that come through Isaac. And now in this next passage, he's going to narrow it through Jacob as well. They're called the children of God in the passage. Now, that phrase, don't confuse that. The children of God in other contexts, 
And this is where some people get off and see that phrase and automatically think the children of God, oh, he's talking about the church or he's talking about believers. Well, he's talking about believers, but it's within a particular subset, you might say. These are the children of God in this context. The true Israel are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that have believed in the Messiah in the first century. And he also calls them the, the children of promise. And the promise there is the promise and promise says that, that are contained in the Abrahamic covenant. So he's not dealing with Gentiles. He's dealing with the nation of Israel first. Now he's going to introduce Gentiles, but not till verse 24 and then some following verses as well, 24 through 30. And then there's some other passages where he, he's going to talk about Gentiles, but they are not within this circle in this context. So you need to keep that in mind. He's not talking about the church. He's talking about Israel and a subset within Israel. Does that make sense? This is all review. One of the first principles, and I'm going to kind of expand this doctrine of election. We already started looking at it last time in terms of Israel. Now, some of these principles that will be developed in Romans 9 pertain to the nation of Israel and not necessarily in terms of, of believers in the church age. So make that clear. And particularly the first one. And Maddie, you might notice I added the word that you mentioned last time. I think it's it makes it more accurate. So God's election is not based, in terms of Israelites, not based solely on physical or natural descent. In fact, God's election involves supernatural intervention. That's the main problem with both Sarah and Abraham. They're past the age of childbearing. Sarah has never born a child. She was barren all of her life. And to complicate it now in later life, over 90 years old, she's past the age of even the possibility of bearing a child. And by the way, now that I mention it, we're going to see, remember, Rebecca also was barren, and it took Rebecca divine intervention before she had the two boys that are in view in this passage. And not only Rebecca, but if you remember, Jacob's wife also was barren until God uh, revived, you might say, or gave life to the womb of Rachel as well. So it's not based solely on physical and natural descent. Now it is in that these are ethnic Jews as well. They're descendants of Abraham. They're descendants of Isaac. But that's not the basis of it. Uh, that's kind of the principle that we developed last last week. I have a question. Go ahead, Jim. Um, so you said that the children of God in this context uh, are the first century Jews that believe in Messiah. And uh, if you don't want to repeat something you've already covered, we don't need to, we talked it some other time, but I was wondering, so this did not, this this, path, this context doesn't include Jews who have believed in the Messiah prior to the first century? I guess it could, I, I think it could include them, but in this context that he's writing to the Romans and the uh, people of the first century, 
he's addressing this broader is, issue of what about the Jewish people and the nation and all of the promises. I think it's more specific to them, but I could include those before as well. True Israelites. In fact, I kind of chart it that way later on. I'll show you another chart. Uh, but the main point that I'm stressing here, he's not talking about Gentiles in this context. Now, the children of God that are Israeli, you might say, or of the nation of Israel, they are part of the church as well. But he's not talking about the church per se in its broader sense of Jew and Gentile in this context. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So now the next passage is going to deal with Jacob, so I call it the choice of Jacob over Esau, verses 10 through 13, and this is what we'll focus in on today. And to break up this passage as well, verse 10 is the conception of the twins. So let's take a look at the passage. And by the way, in the Greek text, it's one long sentence that runs all the way from uh, verse 10 through verse 13. Now, the New American Standard puts a period after verse 12, so I've shown it, and also so that it doesn't require a tiny font. So I've got the whole sentence there. And normally, for those of you that are not with us in a complicated sentence, usually I try to give you the, the big picture here and the main elements of it. So we oftentimes look at the main clause now, even in this sentence, it's a little difficult. The New American Standard adds a subject, you might say, and then it has a subject complement and a equative verb. For those of you that know a little bit of English, of which I do not, I just fake it. What do you see if the sentence starts in verse 10? And not only this, but there was Rebecca also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, semicolon. Now he kind of breaks off and it's going to make a additional comment and elucidation here concerning uh, Rebecca. For though the twins were not yet born and not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, and now he's adding to it, so that God's purpose according to his choice, there's the word from the word group of where we get the idea of election and the doctrine of election, his choice, his choice would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. And now we have a comma. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Does anyone want to add? It might be a little awkward here, but let's see if anyone wants to add. What do you think the main elements of this are? What is the... Main independent clause in this little passage here. And we could go on, but the independent clause is not in verse 13. Uh, the Greek text, or at least the UBS version of the Greek text goes on, and the sentence doesn't end to verse 13. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Yes, but I think grammatically at least, we have an independent clause that kind of controls that. Yeah, so it was said to her, but it goes back to Rebecca. Rebecca also, now the New American Standard, to make it kind of read better, adds there was, it's not in the Greek text, but there was Rebecca, there is the also, the, the chi there, but 
Rebecca, and then it jumps ahead. It was said to her, referring back to Rebecca. And the main idea here is the comment that is said to her. I don't have it highlighted, but essentially the older will serve the younger. In other words, the point he's making here is there's a distinction that is made that goes contrary to not only natural custom and uh, even Jewish tradition, you might say, or biblical teaching, God is selecting one over the other, and that's the thrust of the passage. So that's kind of everything else is just kind of add to and elucidate this idea of a statement that was spoken that is scripture in the book of Genesis that uh, deals with a distinction that God is making between two sons, and they're identified as twins in in the passage here. So that's kind of the big picture. So everything in between, and including verse 13, just simply tells us something about Rebecca and what God is, is telling her in terms of this choice that he's making between the younger and the older. Does that make sense? Everybody follow that? Now, if nobody comments, I'm assuming everybody's following and agreeing and or everybody's fast asleep. So verse 10, back to verse 10. Now we break it down and look at the different parts. And those of you that are not usually with us, we go sentence by sentence and usually clause by clause and sometimes word by word. That's why it takes us a long time sometimes to get through even two or three verses. Last time we went through many verses, didn't we? How many verses did we go through last time? And there were some things I forgot to say. So anyway, verse 10, the beginning here. And not only this, what does that refer to? Well, he gave an incident in the story of Abraham referring to Isaac and how God made a distinction between Isaac as opposed to Ishmael. And how the line and the promises and the covenant, the covenant begins with Abraham and the covenant goes through Isaac. And then in verse 10, and not only this, in other words, I'm going to take you a next step in the book of Genesis. And he's going to talk about another personage. And as I said, another one that had a problem with birth. And I would say that her birth was just as supernatural as Sarah's, even though she was younger, obviously. But it took divine intervention, and Rebecca also has a son. So, and not only this refers to what we talked about last time. We said that Abraham had a child by the name of Ishmael, but that was not the promise. The promise was to come through Sarah. The promise is through Isaac. And they had to wait until God miraculously brought conception and then birth. And then we have the story of Isaac. But not only this, the story goes on in in Romans, but uh, there there was Rebecca also. So now he's going to introduce the next next phase in the plan of God in the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant as it pertains to Isaac. And there's going to be a choice made there as well. So it's probably good to quickly review a little bit of the story of Isaac. And I don't want to spend a lot of time, just a a little reminder of the book of Genesis. And to put these passages kind of in their proper sequence, 
we have chapter 21 where we, after waiting many years, we finally have the birth of Isaac through God's, as we've said, supernatural intervention. Uh, chapter 21, the first three verses primarily, although there's more after verse 3. And now throughout Genesis, we have these tests that God brings in the experience of Abraham and kind of the climactic and the uh, the the major test in the life of Abraham. All of the promises go through Isaac. So now God says, you need to sacrifice Isaac on an altar. And you can imagine all the emotion and all the thoughts and everything that's going through his mind. But what about the promises? He's probably in a similar situation as the Jews of the first century. What Everything hinges on Isaac, and it took supernatural intervention to have the son, and now he's probably a teenager. Ishmael is older, and now I'm supposed to sacrifice him. That's the next passage, chapter 22, and you can include all the way to verse 13, where God is going to provide a substitute for Isaac. And in the passage, he's teaching something of the sacrificial and substitutionary nature of the eventual Messiah. It's going to take, he's going to be a perfect sacrifice that is a substitute for sin. And the book of Hebrews gives us a commentary in that Abraham believed that God was capable of raising Isaac from the dead because everything hinged on him. So chapter 23, now Sarah is obviously old, so she dies. Chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, then we have her burial in the rest of the chapter. Just giving you the sequence of events here. Chapter 24, now the focus is on Isaac, and all of chapter 24 is the search for Rebecca or the wife. And then at the end, they're joined in marriage, but unable to have children, And then you skip to the next chapter, chapter 25. We have the incident where we have the conception and birth of the twins, and that gives you the context. So in Genesis 25, I turned to it because I want to highlight a couple of things in that passage. In verse 23, that's kind of the context of this passage, and that's where uh, part of the quotation comes from. So the last part of verse 10, uh, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Now, I don't want to get off on the difficulty of translating. We owe a great debt to those that take the time to translate scripture, and they're always in a dilemma. How do you transfer the thought from one language to the thought of another language? And in this long clause here, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, that's a subordinate clause, temporal clause in English, it's not easy to translate. That's why I've got for you Greek students at the bottom of the page there, the actual Greek words that are translated. And notice there's only four words. And yet it takes Paul, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight eight words to translate all the way to the comma. So twice the number of words to translate the Greek phrase there. But the translators are trying to communicate the essence of what's here. 
And I'm not saying it's a bad translation, but to give you kind of the, the literal idea, if you're just going word for word, you have a participle at the end there. The participle exusa, present participle, giving the idea of having something. It's kind of an equative verb, having from one, you might even say one sex act. I'm adding even a word there, two words there. That's the essence of what he's talking about here. And notice the word koite. That's a word that we get a an English word that refers basically to the sex act. The ekhenas is by one. So all you have there is by one or from one act, something came about or having something as a result of that one idea. Does that make sense? I, I don't want to get too technical here or get too far off base here. I'm just kind of giving you the sense and mainly for those of you that know a little bit of Greek. So the word conceived, the word twins, they're not in the the Greek text. There's not a word that I know of that conveys that idea, but this little phrase conveys kind of the idea of these two because two are in view. In fact, it's taking a little idea from the quotation where we have uh, two sons and the Genesis account. Any comments on that or questions before I move on here? Yeah, Ray, I have a comment for you. Go ahead. So uh, technically the henos in the Greek right there that you have is actually a masculine, but yeah. the koitane is a feminine. Mm-hmm. So henos cannot be modifying koitane, otherwise it would have been feminine. So it's really from one, um, it, it's like a, it's a pronominal use of the word. So it's really referring to Isaac from one man. Yes, yes. And that's why the New American Standard adds by one man. Because, right. because of the very thing that you're, you're commenting on. Exactly. Okay. Cause I guess I got confused cause it sounded like you were saying that the henos was modifying quetain. So do you understand the, the yes, difference? Yes. Yeah, yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. And you're right. It's, it's feminine. And so is the, uh, the participle is feminine as well. Yeah. I didn't want to get too much into the weeds there, but that's, that's a good, comment in terms of just accurately portraying what we have in the Greek there. Good comment. So what's conveyed here, the conception or the conceiving of twins, the the emphasis here, and this is the reason Paul is mentioning it, he's making a distinction. You might say, well, when we talk about the birth of Isaac and the setting aside of Ishmael, Well, that's understandable because not only was that a compromise on the part of Abraham, but uh, we also have uh, a mother there that has uh, no relationship to Israel, you might say, or the descendants of Abraham. She's a handmaid. She's not part of this plan of God, so that's understandable. But now he's coming to the point and he's being even more specific here is a situation where you have two children in the same womb of the same mother and God is making a distinction between those two children and he's even going to emphasize it even more 
He's even going contrary to tradition and contrary to what's natural in that the older or the one that is born first has the blessings of the father. And God is reversing that and saying, no, I'm doing something different. I am sovereign over what I choose. I'm sovereign in election. And that introduces a lot of problems when we talk about God choosing some and seemingly passing over others. We'll talk about that later. We won't have time to get into that. But already you can see that there might be some theological problems. And in fact, in the next passage, what Paul is going to do is he's going to address, well, doesn't that seem unfair? Doesn't that seem not right? And I think the next passage, Paul is going to address the issue of justice. He's going to vindicate the justice of God. And I've got that on your bottom of your outline sheet in the next passage. So that's verse 10. So now not only do we have Isaac, but now through Rebecca, we have twins from one man or even more specifically one act, one act of conception, Jacob and Esau. And the line is going to go through Jacob, not Esau. Now, another thing to keep in mind here, and this will be more evident as we get to the final quote, and I'll just touch on it today, but that final quote talks about Jacob and Esau. And in the context, he's talking about two nations in Malachi. It's a quote out of Malachi. This is at the end of the Old Testament. We're talking about the Edomites as opposed to the the nation of Israel. So, The descendants of Esau are not part of Israel. The descendants are Edomites, just as the Ishmaelites. We have Ishmaelites and a variety of other peoples. And by the way, Abraham had, after Sarah died, I was going to comment and I forgot, but he remarried and had other children. They are not part of the promise. All of those produce descendants that, in fact, historically have always been antagonistic to the nation of Israel, primarily Arab tribes and Arab peoples. So that's verse 10 and the commentary. And because of time, I'm going to have to go over it a little bit more quickly here. Okay, so let me go over the passage and give a brief introduction to the broader doctrine. So verse 11, now he's expanding concerning Rebecca and expanding upon this idea of the twins and giving a little bit more detail. And in that, for through the twins, and by the way, that word does not occur in the Greek text. It's inserted to kind of add clarity. Otherwise, it's not so clear, but it does refer back. He's referring to the twins for For though the twins were not yet born, and this is the main point here, God is absolutely sovereign. It's not dependent on man or anything that man does. That's kind of the point here. For though the twins were not yet born, so all of this is decided ahead of time in the plan of God, and it's not on the basis of what they did and had not done anything good or bad. So, It's not dependent on man. It is solely the whole idea here. And the next phrase, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. And that word there, choice, is one of the words in the word group 
that is translated elect in some places or to choose in the sense of divine choice. And that word relating to this whole doctrine that we call the doctrine of election. So another main idea here in terms of meaning, here's the Greek word, the word for choice there, ekloge. I've got it transliterated there in parentheses. That's from the Greek word group. And let me just show it real quickly here. We'll come back to this later. There's a Hebrew word that I'll expand. We won't have time today. But the Hebrew word, in fact, it occurs over a 100 times, almost 200 times, the Hebrew word in its noun and verb form, bachar. And I've got the transliteration there. And you can study this whole doctrine. It begins in the Old Testament. In fact, according to Paul, it begins even as early as Abraham. Now, you have the New Testament word, eklegomai. That's the verb form. And it occurs 22 times in the New Testament. And coincidentally, the noun form occurs also 22 times, eklektas. But we still haven't gotten to the word that we have here. I'm just showing you these right now so that you can see the uh, the word group. These all are related and within the same word group. And by the way, I've looked up every single one of these, including every single Hebrew word, to be able to check out some of my uh, conclusions that I draw. The word that we have here is, as you can see, it has the same beginning as the Noun or the verb in the noun, ekloge. I've got the transliteration there. So that's the word group that we want to look at. There's a few others that are related and have the synonymous or their synonyms have the synonymous idea of to choose. And what I want to do is kind of go over the words and then draw some conclusions from that. We'll look at the usage next time. We don't have time to get into that. But one of the main things that we're learning from this passage is God's election, at least pertaining to the nation of Israel, is part of his sovereign purpose. Now, I think that, because we have that word there, if you noticed, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, according to his election, would stand God's election is part of his sovereign purpose. And this is why it is important, because I think it has a part in the overall plan of God. And I think it's unfortunate that we have a hard time uh, understanding it, and a lot of people are fearful of it. But in fact, I believe it is a, a very comforting and encouraging doctrine much like the whole idea of sovereignty as well. In fact, it's closely related to it. So let me just quickly go to the end of the passage here. So it's according to his choice and that that would stand. In other words, that it would be evident that Jews in the first century would recognize that God is sovereignly working. And in fact, he is choosing People that Jews might not expect or not anticipate, especially if their understanding of the God's word is a little fuzzy, because during the church age, that choice and that purpose of God extends to the Gentiles. And that's why the provision of God's righteousness 
includes both Jew and Gentile based on the finished work of Jewish Messiah and that alone apart from works. And by the New Testament time, the Jewish people had perverted the means by which God brought people into a saving relationship and they were basing it on the law and as a result, they missed their Messiah. And then he emphasizes it again in the last part here, not because of works, but because of him who calls. In other words, election, God's blessing, God's privilege, all is dependent upon God who calls. And by the way, there's the same word that we've seen over and over in the book of Romans, particularly in chapter 8, that we defined the calling of God, God calling That's the same kaleo, the same word that we have in that context as well. So we've already looked at that idea of God calling, but in chapter 8, it's broad, Jew and Gentile, and that choice is going to stand, and he's defending that in uh, chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. So another principle of God's election, and again, especially in terms of Israel, it's not dependent on man's works. That's what's clearly stated there. But because of him who calls, and then verse 12, going back to Rebecca, it was said to her, the older, and we'll come back to these verses as we work through our way through the doctrine of election in uh, the weeks to come. So it was said to her, In other words, this distinction that God is making is summarized in the biblical passage. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. And that takes you back to the Genesis passage. And let me read the whole passage, verse uh, chapter 25, verse 23. And the Lord said to her, this is to Rebecca, two nations are in your, your womb. And one of the points I'm going to stress throughout Chapter 9 through 11 is we're dealing corporately. We're dealing with the nation of Israel. And what is anticipated here, epitomized by individuals, obviously Jacob and Esau, real human beings, but it anticipates the history of the nation of Israel and the descendants that will come through Jacob. And I think we need to view these verses not just individually, but also corporately. Two nations are in your womb. So he's speaking of the descendants of Jacob, that would be Israel, and the nation of Israel, and the descendants of Esau, that would be the Edomites, and they have a long history. So two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body. So she's still pregnant. And one people shall be stronger than the other. And then the quotation at the end of verse 23, and the older shall serve the younger. That's out of Genesis 25, verse 23. So we have the choice or the distinction that God makes between Jacob and Esau in that verse 23. So we can expand our little chart here. So Israelites are descendants of Abraham, are descendants of Isaac, but not Ishmael. And then Isaac and Rebekah have the twins Esau and Jacob, and the descendants are through Jacob. And Romans 9, 6 through 13 is talking about the descendants, all of Israel, 
And within that, we saw that in verse 6, 6 through 9, basically, there's a true Israel that he's addressing in the first century that could include true believers even in the Old Testament as well. Then we have the concluding verse, just as it is written. Now he's jumping from Genesis, the first book of the Bible, all the way to the last book of the Bible. And this is after a lot of history. And the quotation comes out of Malachi. I'll give you the context of that later. But essentially, Jacob, I loved, but he makes a distinction. Esau, I hated. Now, that's a strong statement, and I think it has some idiomatic meaning here in terms of Jewish Hebrew idioms, but it's a strong statement. Uh, There's no doubt about it. You don't want to soften the statement, but basically the emphasis on the distinction that God is making is a sharp distinction is the point that I think is made here. And when we come back to this, I'll uh, expand that Hebrew idiom to begin with. Well, let me conclude with a brief little introduction to what I think next week we'll focus more on. We'll come in and out of this this passage that we're looking at, and I'll put it in a broader context with the doctrine of election. And what I want to begin with next time will be an introduction, and let me just review a few things here, just to kind of whet your appetite, if we will. I want to just discuss briefly some of the issues with this whole doctrine. Probably the main issue that people have, if God chose some, then why did God not choose all or elect all? That's that's a major problem and a major issue. And I think we have a partial answer here in this passage itself. So there's also the issue of doesn't this violate man's volition if God has already chosen some and predestined? These seem like almost ideas that uh, violate or undermine the idea of volition. And as we've said before, I think when God works, he works in a sovereign way. But there's a tension that we need to maintain between the sovereignty of God and uh, the uh, volition of man that God has granted. So within, I think, a limited sphere, man has full volition. But uh, I think God also, in tension with that, God also chooses, God predestinates, and all of the issues relating there. So we have a tension there that is that is difficult for us to, I think, understand And as a result, we have a difference of understanding. Another issue relating to why does not God elect all, it seems to violate God's justice. Now, the next passage is going to answer that, at least in terms of Israel. And we may be able to extend that principle beyond Israel as well in terms of the general principle of God's God's election. Some would say, well, This doctrine seems to be God just arbitrarily choosing, and I would say no, because in virtually every passage that deals with election, there's also a statement of a purpose. There's always a purpose statement associated with it. So God has a purpose in electing. Now, some of the debate is over that purpose, 
And when it comes to the choosing or electing of believers in the church age, one of the issues in it is whether or not God chooses some to salvation and or for other purposes. And that would include, for example, the Ephesians 4 passage where many would argue that there's a purpose stated and it's not dealing with salvation at all. But we'll discuss some of those things later. So those are some of the main issues. We'll comment briefly again on that. And I think next time we'll begin with some essential understanding to help us sort out some of the issues and problems with with the doctrine. Somebody was starting to comment there. Yeah, Ray, um, I just have a question for you because I think, uh, are you going to talk about God's pattern of choice through, uh, you know, starting from Abraham, actually, um, well, yeah, going from Abraham and choosing yep. the lesser and the younger, and you're, are you going to trace it through the Old Testament? Because I think that's a really important element here. Yeah, uh, we'll probably touch on that, but... Yeah, this passage, I think one of the main problems that we're dealing with is this problem of God choosing and the specific Greek word. So, yeah, it begins, uh, we could even say before Abraham, but more specifically with Abraham, because that's where Paul begins his argument. But at the heart of this whole passage in Romans 9, at least these verses we're dealing with last week and this week, deal with this doctrine of election, and I think in the next passage as well, and the idea of God separating or distinguishing between two, at least individuals and two nations or a nation and other nations, that's at the heart of it. So yeah, we'll have to trace some of that Old Testament idea, and I intend to get into some of the Old Testament passages as well. Any other comments and questions here before we... Our concluding thought, questions, comments, concluding thought, God's election, and when we get into some of the details, should cause us to trust his sovereign plan. We may not understand it. We may not have all of the verses clearly in mind, but one thing I think, just as it is a comforting doctrine, the doctrine of his sovereignty, so also, I think, It goes right along with it, is the concept of God electing. In fact, one of the points that I'm going to make is that had God not chosen to save, none would be saved. So I think the doctrine is necessary for anyone to be saved. And the issue is not, why did God not save all, but why did God save any? if you want to look at justice. So God's election should cause us to trust his sovereign plan as he has revealed it. Okay, let's, would somebody just volunteer to close for us? Anyone? All close. Did you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Okay. Speak up, though. Hey, our Father and our God, uh, we're really excited about uh, this study and understanding that you have for us. And we pray, Father, that uh, we, that our understanding will be true and accurate to your plan and prepare our hearts so that as uh, conversations with others in the body come about, 
regarding this particular doctrine, uh, that uh, you prepare our hearts to communicate it in a way that's not divisive, uh, but still in a, in a way that is accurate to your plan, so that it is glorifying to you and nurturing to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Great prayer. I, I That's my heart's desire, is that uh, we not be divisive or not be controversial, but be edified, basically.